There are a million ways to make money in the food service industry. You just have to find one. On the Titans of Food Service podcast, I interview real life movers and shakers in the food game who cut through all the noise to get to the top. My name is Nick Portillo and welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. Let's jump right into it. Hello, everyone. Greetings. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Titans of Food Service podcast. Today, I welcome the founder of Culinary Tides, Susie Valderaco. Susie and I, we jumped into great detail around trends, past trends, current trends, future trends, how she's able to predict trends, or I, shall I say, identify trends before they're even born. It is a very, very fascinating conversation. If you are someone who's a foodie or in the food industry, and this is this is something that you are really going to want to sink your teeth into. It's very interesting. I know I, I took a lot away just my own personal knowledge that I can apply to my own business. I think you're going to love this episode. Thank you for following along. Let's go ahead and welcome Susan. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Titans of Food Service podcast. Today, I'm excited to welcome Susie. And Susie's with Culinary Tides. Susie, thanks for joining me here today. Oh, thank you for having me. You're very welcome. How's your week been going? Uh, it's been very busy, but really fabulous. Good. And I want to I know all about why it's been busy. Uh, but first, can, can you tell us maybe a little about your background and how you got started in, in the food industry? Uh, sure. I actually started out a thousand years ago as a criminalist uh, out in California. So my bachelor's is actually criminalistics. So I did crime scenes. I was a drug toxicologist. Um, anyway, I trained with FBI originally out in California, and I trained with Scotland Yard in London when I was 19, specifically for serial killers. Wow. So when you have that kind of job or you, you're in parts of military, um, they will test you for pattern recognition because you can see if you have a crime scene or you're parts of military or law enforcement, it's handy to know if you happen to have a pattern recognizer on your team and only 4% of the population are pattern recognizers. So it's, it's not a common gift. Uh, and it turns out I'm one of them. That's why I got to go play with serial killers. <laughs> so uh, fast forward after I stopped stepping over dead bodies, I naturally went to culinary school. And so my, my associate is in culinary arts. So I am a certified chef and working in the industry, research and development, QA, et cetera. I went back again and my master's is in human nutrition. So I'm also a registered dietitian. And it wasn't until I was pulled into a think tank and they are, they knew the original degree. They knew my original criminalistics background. So they said to me, instead of tracking serial killers, track serial bars. And I was like, I totally get what you mean. I love that phrase. So it took me about a year. It took me about a year to like turn the analytics on their head and look at an industry instead of a human. So as far as we know, we're still the only ones doing um, this kind of work. Going back to your time as a, a criminalist, what is a pattern recognizer and why is only 4% of the population fall into this category? So there's, there's two types and I'm actually both, weirdly. That's even more rare. So there's auditory and there's visual. So you're either recognizing visual patterns. So looking at a person and their movement, whether they're a liar or not a liar. So you can also look at uh, pictures, crime scenes and start and you can pick up patterns faster than anybody else. It's just an innate ability. 
Auditory is you can listen for patterns. So again, you can listen and hear if someone's lying to you, if they're holding something back, you know, what their mood is when they're talking to you. So you can put those together. That's why like profilers, uh, they will tend to look for pattern recognizers to be a profiler, but visual pattern recognition works with crime scenes because we're visually picking out commonalities between different crime scenes, which for example, serial killers would leave behind. So we pick up on patterns much faster than any other person. Um, so it's just innate ability. So for instance, the way like our, anybody who works for me has to be tested before you even get an interview. And so if most people don't know this, but if you take a standard IQ test, 20% of that test is actually looking for pattern recognition abilities. So you can siphon off those questions and then formulate a pattern recognizing test. Do you know what I mean? So um, pattern recognizers often, without knowing that they're pattern recognizers, they'll, they're the people that will grow up to be engineers, architects, those kind of, those kind of um, fields. And if they're in military, they usually end up being drawn into military intelligence like whether they know they have that ability or not, that's how their brain is wired. And how do you test for this? An IQ test? So no, we like we create you. Well, law enforcement and we ourselves have created our own tests. But what how we created the tests are we take IQ tests, siphon off the twenty percent of the questions that are pattern recognition questions, and that way you come up with just a pattern recognition test. But it's actually questions that you can pull off of. Um, IQ, standard IQ test because about 20% of the questions are are looking for that. And so could, did you say that you have, you have a higher likelihood than maybe somebody who is not a pattern recognizer to tell if someone's visually, if they're lying or not? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You, you may not, you may not know like what the lie is or why they're lying, but you can tell whatever is coming out of their mouth certainly isn't the truth. Did you ever see that that TV show in the 2000s? I believe it was the 2000s. Lie to me. Lie to me. Yes. Did you watch that? Oh, I freaking love that show. Oh, my yeah, gosh. I absolutely love that show. I'd I love it, that too. Show. I, I, I remember yeah, I my, my, my grandma would come over every week because uh, I think I was, like, in middle school at the time uh, or maybe early high school, and we'd watch. We were, we were like, how does this guy know? I it, Was that over – overdrawn or is that kind of really no, how no, it is? no that like the experts they had that's why I loved it because it was very accurate um like I can't watch crime dramas because I immediately pick out what's wrong with it like okay that 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 and would never happen at a crime scene but I do love true crime series like Lieutenant Joe Kenda's series you know Homicide Hunter and Forensic Files, because it's an actual case. So that TV show was actually, I enjoyed it because it was very accurate because of the experts they had behind the scenes helping with the scripts. Interesting. My wife, she... That's why I enjoyed it, because, yeah. Yeah. No, my wife, she's big into true crime podcasts. Oh, yeah. And there's a few that she listens to, Crime Junkie being one of them. And Mm -hmm. I can't remember the other one. My Favorite Murder is the other one. And she loves those. I mean, she, I think she's for both, both of those podcasts. I think she's listened to every single episode. And I, I like the ones where I know exactly at the end, what happened, who killed who. Exactly. You know, I, I don't like the, yeah, I can't, I agree. I can't stand the, um, you know, murder, like, uh, unsolved mysteries. I'm right. like, nope, not, nope, not interested. Nope. 
got to have an ending. Exactly. Got to know what happened. Exactly. Like, I can't stand the cliffhangers. I'm like, nope, that was not satisfying. Right. Well, and so in the food industry, I can also, we also profile trends. So we can profile yeah. corporations. We can profile a trend, just like you profile a robber. You can profile a trend. And so what we always say is it doesn't matter if you know what the trend is. Like, it doesn't matter if you know plant proteins are trend. If you don't know where it's going, where it came from, how long it's going to last and where it's going next, you have you have really no way to navigate it. Yeah, no kidding. So that's what we we actually act as a, a side along think tank, a private forecasting think tank for each of our clients. So we're on one to four year contracts with our clients because we keep them at all times. We keep them out two years ahead of themselves. So we're not tracking what happened yesterday. We're watching like what's going to happen and why it's going to happen, what's going to change, you know, up to two years out. So like a lot of companies do fabulous surveys, let's say, you know, to see what are the hot flavors, what are consumers thinking, right? So they'll do surveys. Well, the thing to think about surveys is consumers, one, you cannot ask them a question if they don't know the trend exists. So one, you can only survey them once a trend is full blown on the ground running and has been around for a little while. Otherwise, they won't know what you're, you can't ask them. They won't know what you're talking about. The second thing is consumers can only tell you what they did yesterday. So it's not useful to just look at surveys to figure out where they're going to be in 18 months, which is where we come in, because that's what the clients need to know is not what they did yesterday. And you can't ask them in a survey where you're going to be in 18 months. They'll, again, look at you like you have three heads. Sure. So our analytics tell that. Our analytics are four sites, not just watching what a trend is doing today. So what it, what inspired you to move from the criminalist world into the food industry? Oh, gosh. it Well, to first thing I did was became a chef, right? So first thing I did was jump into culinary school. So half the crime lab thought I was absolutely lost my mind. And the other half of the crime crime lab thought I was like the most brilliant, brave person ever. But basically, I was this young little tot quitting criminalistics. And I just thought, well, we don't want to keep changing careers. So what do you really love to do? And then let's figure out how to make money at it. So I thought, I love to cook. I mean, you can tell how young I must have been when I made this decision. So I was like, we're going to go to culinary school and we will figure it out. And my goal back then was to get my master's before I was 30, which I accomplished. So congratulations. Got the associates. But I I also learned in culinary school, I am absolutely not built to work in the restaurant scene because I am like not that strong, (laughs) strong willed, strong by. I'm like, nope, this is too much for me. So that's how I discovered the world of corporate, corporate chefs, right? So mm. working for Nestle and working, but as a corporate chef, not actually in like a, a regular restaurant. So that's the path I took. But again, then when I went, you know, back again for my master's, I was going to go for food science and the university I went to, Washington State University, actually talked me out of food sciences, my master's. They said, wait, you're already a scientist. Like you should do something that complements it. I'm like, okay. And so that's how I did dietetics instead. And and it was the best decision. So I tell my kids, I tell my staff, I say, surround yourself by people smarter than you and then do about 85% of the things they tell you to do. Mm -hmm. Not hundred percent, but 85%. Go ahead. Yeah. 15%. I'm like, nope, that's not happening. Right. So, but when they're like, do be a dietitian, I'm like, okay, that sounds good to me. And so I did. And 
And again, once when I, um, I did go into the USDA, I worked for the USDA for two years mm. at some point. Um, it turns out I do not belong in government. So when I got out of the USDA and I was coming back, that's when the think tank found me. And, uh, and then, like I said, I didn't think to be a forecaster for the industry. That didn't even cross my mind. Like, I didn't even know that was a job, really. Like, sure. it didn't cross my mind. But it was the think tank that said, like I said, they said, instead of tracking serial killers, we want you to track serial bars. And then it clicked. That was like, oh, I can absolutely, that's brilliant. That's a great, yeah, I can do that. And so that's why it took me about a year, like I said, to turn the analytics on their head. And then I was in the think tank for four years and the think tank was moving across the country and I didn't want to move across the country. Um, and so for a, a few months, I con you know, contacted big companies and this was a thousand years ago. So this didn't exist, right? This type of job didn't really exist. So I contacted a bunch of companies, told them what I do and one of the companies just finally said to me, they, they're like, you know, you're like a giraffe in a petting zoo. Uh, you're really cool to look at and talk to, but we have no idea what to do with you. Amazing. And another company said, yeah, that's cool, but we would need a whole division just for you. And I was like, oh, my gosh. So I quickly just realized I, to keep doing the work, I, I just had to start a company. And so I did. <laughs> so like, I did, I'm not a brave entrepreneur. Like I didn't, you know, leap off the cliff. I was pushed off the damn cliff because <laughs> I couldn't imagine not doing the work. So I, so I gave myself like a year and I had tiny, tiny children. I had like, you know, a four-year-old and a six-year-old. Like I had tiny kids when I'm like, oh, I think I'll start a company. So I gave myself a year to start and it's 18 years later, I'm still going. Wow. Congratulations. I, I kind of think of it because I too, I started a business with my dad about almost eight years ago now. And the, it, it feels like we're jumping out of an airplane and building the parachute on the way down. Uh, oh, oh yeah. And I absolutely believe ignorance is absolute bliss. Totally. Like it's better to be ignorant starting a company in some sense, because looking back, if you realized all the stuff you had to do to build the company and start the company and get clients, and there's no way you would do it. Right. Like there's no way I would have started a company had I known how hard it was and all that, you know, it was just in the beginning, that first year there, there were honestly times where I thought, okay, I need a haircut. Mm -hmm. It's been four months. How, how am I going to pay for a haircut? Right. And then, yep. We do, we do a yearly report and we've been doing the yearly reports for, I think, 12 years now. And uh, actually maybe longer than that, but it, it's, it's the only time we do a one-time report that we actually offer to the entire food industry. It's not just for our clients. Um, and it actually gets released every March. So it actually just got released. Oh. The reason I bring that up is because the reason that report got started is literally because my son needed surgery and our, we had bad, you know, we had terrible insurance and I had to come up with five grand for the, the insurance that out of pocket it was going to cost us. And what we had been doing for years before that is we would, um, we would start collecting like every year, you know, you've seen news, like everybody launches their top 10 trends list yes, for the coming year. Here's the consumer trends. Here's the flavor trends. Here's beverage. Well, my company, we would collect those kind of just for fun, like for our own education, be like, hi, huh, I wonder what would happen if we collect them. So that's how the report got started was I'm like, what if we cross analyze all these lists, put in our own information, our own analytics onto, you know, and sell it. And that's literally how my son's 
operation got paid for when he was like six years old. That is a great but story. It, it's mother of invention, right? Like yeah. it, it didn't care. And then it was funny because then the next, you know, we just, you know, kind of offered it to our clients. And then the next year the clients had told other people about it. And then we had random companies that, and we're like, Oh my gosh, we have to do this again. Seriously. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> and again, so we've been doing it for more than 12 years, but um, like this year we, we had to cross analyze I think it was something like it's on our website, but it's 165 lists and it's over a hundred forecasters we had to cross analyze. And so the total number of individual predictions we had to sift through was 2,200 predictions. I mean, so we'd have to look at 2,200 individual predictions, cut back what, what ones are repeats, what ones are, you know, just never going to happen. And then we would add in our own predictions where the holes were, were with gap analysis. So part of the report is our own additionals. And then we do things like affinity scales and navigation charts, and, and they're all military analytics we add to it. But it, it's, and, and the report covers um, food, beverage, consumer, health, technology, government, and travel trends. So it's a massive report. I mean, I think the slide deck for it is like, it's something ungodly, like 150 slides. Wow. So it's a fabulous, but it's just grown into this thing. But yeah, originally that's how it started. Because <laughs> my kid and I was poor. So, but yeah, it's a very fun report, but its beginning is extremely humble. I'm sure. You know, when, when as an entrepreneur, I think there's, there's so many books out there or now, you know, YouTube and, and social media that says, well, you should quit your nine to five jo- job and start your own, you know, oh. destiny, your own destiny. <laughs> and, and in the process, you're like, okay, I just did it. I've been going. It's been a few months or a year now, but nobody told me how hard it is uh, to start a company. They just said they talked about all the great parts of it. But my first year, I barely made any money. Uh, I had to scrape oh, together. I had I to started. leverage everything. I'm sure you you can definitely resonate. With oh that. yeah, yeah. I mean, there were months where it was like, how how is the mortgage getting paid this month? Right. You know, it was just like I did the most bizarre side gigs throughout that first year, but because it took a year to get a first client, because with our work, it's since it's a year long contract with you know at minimum with our clients, it, we have to fit into their yearly budget, right? So. Mm-hmm. You have to wait till December before their budget even comes up to even know if you're in their budget, right? So it's not like we're not selling toasters where I can get clients every three days. I have, I can wait six or eight months or a year for a client to be able to get a contract with them because of their fiscal year and when their budget hits. So for a year, we had nothing. Like the first year, I did nothing. I just, I worked for other forecasters. I did side little gigs and, you know, in the food industry, but it, it was literally, how am I going to get my hair cut? When is the mortgage due? Like, it was terrifying. <laughs> I, need a haircut. It, I just starved. I mean, it was honestly terrifying. The first year was no money terrifying. Oh, my gosh. And when it comes to this annual report, who is who typically, who is this suited for? Who reads this? Oh, it's a launch for the entire industry. So, so the clients who would buy this report, it could be ingredient suppliers, flavor houses. It could be 
um, manufacturers that sell into retail, like the Crafts and the Nestle's that sell into retail. It's also the manufacturers that sell into food service and then it's food service itself. So like restaurant chains, et cetera. So it's as long as you sit on the, in the food world, anywhere, anybody could buy the report, anybody, it would, and it's typically within the corporation, it's typically, either the marketing department or if they have an insights department that's or innovation department. So within a company, those are kind of the divisions that any, so we put it this way, anybody who's responsible for, for analyzing trends information and then pushing it out to the rest of the organization, that's who buys the report. And that's the same people that contract with us to be their think tank throughout the year. Got it. It for me, selfishly, I, I, I'm curious. I'm a food service broker, so we represent food manufacturers, and we essentially we connect them with large uh, food service operators and distributors in our area. How could okay. I leverage something like this, or our company leverage something like this? So, give me. Can you give me a quick example of like something you'd work on, like a project you're working on, or you can make it up, but give me an example. Yeah, an example would be. So think about. So we, we get essentially an exclusive contract to represent a food service manufacturer and we'll get exclusive in a certain area. So let's just choose the state of Nevada because we're in Nevada. So in the entire state of Nevada, everything that we sell in that state into food service, we'll get a commission on. Now, as a food broker, we have, we're, we're essentially multi-line reps. So there are multiple manufacturers that we're representing simultaneously. Each manufacturer is different. You know, there's not one manufacturer that's the same. So there's different segments that we go into. Maybe it's chains or maybe it's K-12 or maybe it's casinos. And we have a sales team that goes out with that kind of background knowledge, goes out, presents our clients' products, and then tries to connect the, essentially the the operator, the restaurant to distribution so that they can start, uh, create pull-through. Okay, so uh, your your clients, the manufacturers you work for, yes. um, do you go to them or do those manufacturers find you to represent them? Um, it's a mixture of both. I mean, there's definitely word of mouth, but then we also do cold outreach as well or meet them at a trade show. So it, it's a little bit of both. Okay, and then you would take, I'm just going to make this up. Yeah. Let's say you find a manufacturer of like, like salad, like deli type salads okay. that you would then sell into a restaurant chain. So then you're taking the little deli salads, that's your client, and you're trying to sell it into whoever, TGI Fridays or whoever the restaurant Correct. is. Okay, that's now I got it. Yes. Okay, so we would work, it, pretend you're our client. Okay. So it would work both ways. One, the foresights we'd be giving you, We, by the way, we'd be watching all the different spaces you tell us to watch around food, beverage, whatever it is, kind of products you deal with. We would, on one hand, be helping you um, decide which new clients you might want to bring on because they have the products that have the best potential to connect with consumers in restaurants, for example. Right. So we would like, let's say you have like three companies. You're like, well, we're thinking of taking these three. as We'd be like, okay, this one is the strongest. And let me tell you why. You know, this one, one hit wonder. Right. You might not want to play with them. And the other side of your business, we would then educate you and make sure you have the foresights on when you're taking those salads, let's say, Mm -hmm. 
into a restaurant, you would know exactly which restaurants would be the best fit. And when you present the salads to try and get the restaurant to buy them, you would have all the foresights and trends information in a presentation, let's say. So you're showing them the salads, how it fits into the upcoming trends, what consumers it hits. And that would sell your product a lot faster into the restaurants. And then on top of that, the restaurants and your client, simultaneously, both of them would see you as a resource for having insights and having foresights on what things are coming up. So you're, I could imagine, because this has happened to our clients, your clients, the manufacturers, might start looking to you for, hey, where are the salads going next? Like we're thinking, do you know what I mean? So you suddenly also kind of become a resource for both ends of your business for foresight, but we're the ones secretly whispering in your ear and then you get to take all the credit. I love that. I, I, on a, I, 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 I truly, I love that. <laughs> we're we're Credit, we're just gonna bill you. Yeah, exactly. Um, I had uh, on a previous podcast episode, I had a, a guy come on, and he's he's uh, he owns a marketing agency, and he's kind of a marketing guru. And we were talking about uh, on the marketing side. He goes for any company there; they may have anywhere between two hundred and a thousand customers that can realistically buy their product. It's usually kind of a sweet spot, and within our area, and so. You're essentially saying we can maybe help you find those 200 to 1,000 operators, let's say, or customers for a specific food service manufacturer that we represent. Yeah. And and so when you are going in, let's say your sales team is going into a restaurant, like to show your, you know, what to show whatever the products are that you're representing. Um, do you do a presentation to them? Yes. Like we, Okay. So what we've done with clients, too, is we actually travel in with you. As an example, we present to, I'm just going to make this up. Let's say you're going into TGI Fridays. I'm just going to make up somebody. We actually go with you to TGI Fridays and then we present first. We present to TGIF for all the trends that we know that they, that would affect their clients, their consumers for that restaurant chain, right? So we would give them all the foresights. Here's all the upcoming trends, the global flavors, the beverages. Here's what's going to happen to your bar, et cetera, et cetera. And then you sweep in behind me and say, and here's the products that we offer that fit with all those trends. And how do you utilize them? (laughs) So we're this neutral third party that is basically speaking to, because we know what TGF would want or any restaurant would, who their people are. But then, so we're working for you. We're not trying to get their business. We're right. we're showcasing because then you sweep in and go, and here's, let's taste some products that would fit with all those trends that are coming up. So we're not about telling you yesterday or today. We have to tell you and them what's happening in six months, eight months, 12, whatever their buying cycle is, right? Because they're going to buy from you. That might not get on the menu for a few months or, or even six months, depending on the restaurant. That's the information they have to have. They can't have plant proteins amazing. That's going to do them no good at all. Yes. We have to tell them the evolution and, well, how are you going to use plant protein? Like, where are you going to use it? Right. Who wants plant protein? So we have to give them all of that information. Because it's like I said, it's not enough to know the trend exists. You have to know where did that thing come from? Where is it going? So we also deal with birth patterns. So all of our clients, we have to tell them who the parent is of the trend, which because they have parents, which is weird to think about. And then we also have to tell them the birth pattern. So the birth pattern is how did, and there's like six ways a trend can be born, but they're certainly not born in a vacuum. 
so they're coming from somewhere. And so we have to set our clients up with who's the parents, where did this thing come from? Because then that way we can then project what's the longevity, what what could it look like next? Is it going to morph into something else? And also what are the categories? Because sometimes something could be born in the cocktail scene and move to the dessert scene. And wouldn't that be fabulous if you already know that? You just come out with a dessert now. And you would be cutting edge. That is cutting edge. What about, right. what about, we have manufacturers, you know, the, it, on the food service side, a lot of times the, the distributor is kind of the gatekeeper. They bring in the product into their warehouse and then the food service manufacturer doesn't necessarily know where that product is going or who it's going to. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Is that something, I don't know, is that something outside of the scope of what you do is, is helping find who's using that product or no, is that more of a needle in the haystack kind of thing? Um, do you mean, like, do you mean what type of consumer is using the product? Yeah, or? like uh, which restaurants? Like, oh, which, oh, like I, could you get like specific as to, you know, uh, John's place on the corner is using this product? No, absolutely not. We could care less. Gotcha. <laughs> we couldn't care less. No, no, like, so that, no, we don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's definitely not, not the area we play in, but we would tell you the profile of what type of restaurant would be interested in a product. Got it. Because, for example, like some trends and some I- individual products, in fact, in fact, you can, I'll give you a funny example. You can have coleslaw, right, right, as a product. You can have a very traditional grandma's type coleslaw that's lovely and delicious. It's kind of mayonnaise-based, right? That's going to go into a certain type of restaurant. You can have coleslaw that's pie-based and super spicy, vinegar-based, poppy seed, you know, whatever it has in it. That's a wildly different client that you're dealing with to sell that coleslaw. So you can profile the products and their personalities just like you can corporately profile corporations. So that's why you can, so like, so because restaurants themselves have personalities, right? Yes. So you could have one restaurant that, that you know is kind of, you know, fabulous cutting edge party atmosphere, Gen Z's, lower millennials tend to play at it. It's affordable. It's, you know, not quick service. It's higher end, but it's like this fabulous bar atmosphere. Like it has a, so that, that menu then mirrors that company. And you can have a very traditional cracker barrel, which is lovely and it's family oriented, older generations of that's that first coleslaw. That's where that coleslaw is going. <laughs> so you can personality profile a trend, a product, um, a beverage, a company. And so what we would be doing is we'd be higher sky. We'd be profiling what type of restaurant are you looking at and what's their personality and who, who are their customers that are walking in that door? Who are they aiming at? That's how we would, that's the extent we would be able to help. Yeah, I can see how that'd be a big benefit. Let's say we represent a, let's say we want to represent that same coleslaw company or cold salad company. And we, we yeah. feel that, you know what? I think throughout the state of California and Nevada, there's X number of kosher delis out there that could buy this product and it would be perfect mm-hmm. for. Can you help locate or identify who those uh, restaurants or, or delis would be or no? Yeah. Couldn't care less. Nope, not us. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> we, we would tell you who to go look for. Right. Here's the thing to look for. Um, 
or or the flip side around let's say you find fabulous restaurant chain that's kind of up and coming mm-hmm. and you absolutely want in on it like i'll give you a fun example there is there's a fa- I, I absolutely want to go to this little chain i don't know them at all so i'm just saying because i have a crush on them but we don't work for them at all but they're i believe they're called i want to say they're called grays okay it's brand new only in a couple states and basically they went down the path of little charcuterie boards so their entire menu is little charcuterie boards where salads could fit on the charcuterie board, right? You could have part of the little salad on the charcuterie board. So let's say you form a crush on somebody and you're like, ah, I want a contract with them because they're fabulous and they're going to grow. Yes. Um, we would then, like, and let's say we're working together, we would then tell you, well, here's what you need to show them to get your foot in that door. Here's the types of products. Here's what, you know, here's what you could show them that they don't yet know about or that we know would spark their interest. So we could work that way as well. Ah, that, okay, that makes sense. And that's actually very intriguing. Uh, not yeah, not just for my business, practice. but I, I, it, I mean, you've built a business out of this. So there's a lot of people that I think probably view this as definitely a need. And it's funny because, I mean, our company too, we get crushes on companies too. We're like, okay, how can we be on their Foresight's team? Like, right. How can we stop them? <laughs> like, I was talking to I was talking to someone the other day, and actually, it was funny because we got we got selected as because um, we speak all over the country at food beverage conferences all over the country. So um, a very very prominent publisher who is fabulous, um, he knows us, and so he got us on the phone. And he was explaining to this client who's going to do this conference, and he's like. Yeah, so uh, we've been seeing a lot of emails from these guys lately because their yearly report is you know, coming out. So we email everybody we know. And I'm like, I think the word you're looking for is tenacious. I think that's the word you're <laughs> looking for because word. he's like, that's just stalking us. I'm like, I think that's tenacity. I don't think that's stalking. Just to clarify that, it was like super hilarious. Oh my it's like, gosh. Stalking is Tenacity. Yeah, You're just yeah tenacious. tenacious. Yeah, just tenacity. Stalking. There's no binoculars involved. There's no night gear. It's, you know, it's just emails, phone calls, and yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> run it down little dream corporations we have crushes on. Yeah. So you mentioned that there's six ways a trend can be born. Can you walk through the process for identifying or analyzing a new trend? Oh, a new, well, that's total. that's a different question. Okay. Um, okay. So let me think about this, how to put this yeah. so I don't make you fall asleep. So <laughs> I'm wide awake. <laughs> but, okay. So to, for us to, so first we have the ability with our analytics, which is also unique. We have the ability to identify a trend before it's even born. So it, we can prove something exists that doesn't actually exist. <laughs> Which wrap your head around that. Yeah. So so it doesn't exist yet, but we have one of our analytics is it's called the link diagram. But it, it's and essentially it's a way to sort chaos and it's a way as a crime scene. Like picture you walk into a crime scene. Well, not that you would, but just try to picture that. You walk into a crime scene and what does it look? It looks like a big mess. Just looks like a big mess. Yes. There is no discernible anything. It's just a big mess. But it's not a mess at all. There's actually a pattern that you can easily pick out once you're trained. So what link diagrams do, because that's what we would utilize, it links things that you don't think are related to each other at all. But what they're related, they're only all the different branches off of a link diagram are related through a central question. 
So whether it's a crime scene or whether it's the question of like, I'll give you an example. One we, one we saw the birth of well before it was born was, um, Soul food, now it's just the deep Southern food trend. But soul food as a national trend did not exist. And we saw it in 2007. It actually got born and went national in 2008. So we we could prove it existed a year before it existed. And so once you have a link diagram, then you move to other analytics to showcase its birth pattern. So for instance, what in that example with soul food, which is now Southern food trend, we could show that it, it by a number of things. I'll give you an example. Like we knew it existed as a trend, even though no one knew it was a trend because it tapped in simultaneously to um, consumer drivers, international global flavors that were hitting America at that time that each of the individuals were part of whole food. So like Caribbean, parts of African cuisine coming in, French cuisine coming in simultaneously. If you add all those up, it's actually soul food. That's that was the food of Gullah and the food of the slaves when you put it all together. We also were picking up at the time the word soul food was act, the term was actually being used by four different publications in four different countries, Israel, Philippines, two other countries were using our American term, but in their food. So that started showing up. And also at the same in 2007, there was four different chefs that simultaneously launched regional barbecue flavors and sauces from the deep South, but independently. So all of, so then there was a number, but there was um, the health trends at the time were also the backbone of soul food. So dark greens, grains, beans, other items were trends, but if you add them up, it's soul food. Like those are every single item that was showing up was actually in soul food. So when you link all of these different things together, you can show very easily. It's like, oh my God. So we call it a shadow because it's something that's not born. It's not adopted yet. And it's sitting in the shadow. So we call it a shadow and it's sitting. And what it needs is it needs a champion or someone or something pulling it forward. Well, what burst it? Cause some people think, Flavor trends start in high-end restaurants and trickle down. That never is where it's really how that ever happens. This actually got born out of QSR. So back in 08, because we have timeline diagram is the next diagram. So a timeline diagram showed us who was launching what in real time across like a six-month period, independent of each other. So for instance, in that timeline, McDonald's in 2008 launched their Southern Chicken Sandwich. And then the New Orleans Southern Soul Food Museum opened up a few months later. And then Dickie's Barbecue went national with a huge expansion. And then, um, oh my gosh, Popeye's reinvented itself as, you know, uh, Louisiana's Kitchen. And then you keep rolling forward. And then White Castle came out with a Southern sandwich. And then TGI Fridays came out with a Southern dish. And then by the end of 2008, Bon Appetit named new southern as the it cuisine for the year so we could show all of this before it actually got born so by 2008 then it was a trend but we could we could track it and show it was trend a year before without anybody knowing it was a trend fascinating oh uh, all right Cesar. i know there's a lot of people out there probably thinking or (laughs) want to ask the question okay you guessed this in 2007 soul food what is it for 2023 oh no Oh, no. That's too broad. That's honestly too broad of a question. It's too broad. Okay. Uh, It's too broad. But uh, but, um, let me think about that. I mean, 
like I said, our report deals with 2,200 different trends. Yeah, yeah that's different. a good point. I can so feel it's like, very broad. Definitely. But um, I, I'll, ba- I'll back into it this way. Okay. So what we also teach our clients is like, how can you spot something that doesn't exist? Or how can you come out with something that doesn't yet exist, but makes total sense in consumers' minds? Like, like subconsciously, the consumer will instantly get it, even though it's something new on the market. And the way you do that is you have to look at the parents. So I'll give you some quick examples. So travel is a great parent. It's called a courier parent. And a courier is the way something's born. And a courier birth occurs when a tr- when something is outside the food industry is born, like in the travel industry, and then filters into the food industry. So for instance, what you would do with travel, if you want to look at that as an inspiration for a menu, let's say, uh, what you want to look at is travel research on what are the hottest places that consumers are going to for this year or next year, 2020. So I'll give you some examples. Travel for 2023 going into 2024, we are definitely back to international travel, but I would be looking at regional Mexico. I would be looking at the Caribbean because we're we're potentially going into recession. So people are traveling, but they're not traveling super far. Like they're not going to Antarctica. They're not, do you know what I mean? They're going kind of a little bit closer in. They're also, unfortunately, or fortunately, they're camping more. So I would be looking at camp foods as a pattern, like s'mores, believe it or not, are going to come back again because people are camping. Um, but that's and also um, back to Korea. So Korea is picking up on travel. That's why Bobo Tea is here again, even though we already know that as a as a product. Mm-hmm. So you actually look at travel destinations. The the where, where are they going the most and why? And that's that's where you look at those are the global cuisines. And so also you can another one you can look at crisis. So why are pierogies showing up on menus and in? magazines because the Russia-Ukraine conflict. That's that's the parent. It's a global conflict that's the parent. You can also look at, so if you do look at like restaurant, other restaurants for inspiration, you don't look at high-end restaurants. What you look for is which chefs or restaurants are doing something interesting enough that they're capturing media attention nationally. Because then that captures consumer attention nationally on whatever that rest. And it could be a diner. It could be quick services doing something fabulous. It could be, you know, some pub chain is doing something fabulous. Um, that's where you look at. You don't look at high end and figure out what's going on. You look at who's getting media attention. That's what consumers are watching. And that's what they'll understand when you launch something similar. Does that make sense? That makes sense. So there's all different parents that you look at. You can also, we also say, look at celebrations. So for instance, (laughs) we always say, if you really want your country's food to be featured in another country for about a year, host an international sporting event. So look for where are the soccer championships this year? And I believe it's Morocco. Expect Moroccan and Northern African cuisine to come in. So you look at where those big, like if it was an Olympics year, that cuisine is going to filter into the U.S., wherever that Olympics is happening. Do you know what I mean? So if it's South America, expect Peruvian food to hit with for about a year. So you look for where the parents are um, that could cause the births, and then that's how you get out ahead of consumers. You can't ask consumers these questions. You have to get out ahead of them. Right. And I, what about concepts that have maybe slowed down in popularity. Think of like, you know, your dimly lit steakhouse. 
me as part of the yeah. millennial generation, or I, I can't speak for the Gen Zers, but you know, we may not be ones necessarily going into a dimly lit steakhouse, but are there yeah. concepts like that, uh, ones that were popular at one point that could, I'm, I'm sure they could, but are, are going to make a renaissance, have the renaissance moment where they come back anytime soon? Oh, interesting. So um, I'm so glad I'm not on camera right now. I have a cat standing on my shoulder right now. (laughs) Oh, no way. Like, I'm being talked to, mister. Um, Yes, and I'm going to tell you the opposite of that question, too. Which ones are going to go on Vogue super, super quick? Oh, I do want to know that, too. Which is like, and and, yeah, it's super, super. And and it's so funny because I, well, I'll come back around to that second one. But first, your first question was, which ones are going to have a renaissance? Yes. Um, So that's easy. So the, and there's many, many reasons why. So here's the other thing. A trend does not happen by chance and a trend does not happen because one thing occurred. A trend happens because 50 things occurred. That's how it, so they're far more complex than people think they are. So what we look at also is behavioral research. So to this answer your question, we would be looking at behavioral research, not survey work, which is wildly different research. So what's occurring right now is it's we're technically still in a pandemic, but we're two years past the original, you know, lockdown. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're potentially going into recession, which normally what would happen is people would stop eating out because they're saving money. They're going to eat at home more. They're buying groceries and they're holding on to their money. That is not actually occurring because COVID was so psychologically damaging and scarring, especially to the younger generations that we're just refusing to stay at home. But we're also not going out to the dimly lit steakhouses, right? Where we're going is we're using restaurants. Consumers behaviorally are using restaurants as a psychological escape, a moment to get away from it all, a moment to connect with family or friends or coworkers, or they're bringing their kids and they're just dropping out mentally of society for an hour or two by going to a restaurant. So what kind of restaurant is that then? It's your pubs. It's your, you know, fabulous, possibly semi-noisy gathering spots that are known to the locals. It's um, someone who has a fabulous bar and clever, clever drinks because psychologically that's an escape for me, right? And for the younger generations, it could be kid-friendly, but not QSR. 100% 100% not QSR, mm. but not also stuffy family casual, like more like, um, you know, somewhere I can take my kids, they can have fun too. Maybe there's something for, for the kids at that restaurant, but it's kind of gathering spots. It gives something that brings them joy, which is why lovely dimly lit steakhouses are not the it place right now, but QSR also is not the it place right now. So it has to be affordable It can't be extravagant. I have to be able to possibly bring my kids, but it has to be celebratory because I'm using it mentally as an escape. So then the opposite of that, what's going to, what's already going south. And I'm sure you've seen articles because it's so funny. Less than a year ago, I spoke for 10 minutes on this at a conference and you either loved me or hated me. Did you say less than 10 minutes? Well, it was, it was quote, it was a Ted talk, but they, oh. you can't call it a Ted talk. It was like, whatever it was. So, so the, what they did was <laughs> I'm very good at coming up with wildly controversial topics and me and another company menu matters once a month. We do, we do our little half hour 
um, webinar and we, we take wildly. And then the, the titles are hilarious. Like for instance, the last one we did, it's on our website, but the last, because we record them. Last one we did was called, why is GMO always the villain and organic always the hero? And then it's not to bash organic at all, but it's to uncover the science as to why GMO, you kind of can't live without it. Here's, so we take these wildly. So what they, so for the conference, they're like, okay, come up with some wild. And we came up with hilarious. The one they picked is why ghost kitchens are going to die. And so I did. I'm like, that's easy. I can tell you exactly why it's going to die. And now they're dying. Right. So now ghost kitchens, there's all these, I'm like, yep, said that. Like, what was that six months ago, eight months ago? But the reason is because they don't have a purpose anymore for consumers. There are no drivers for consumers for ghost kitchens. Ghost kitchens were a fabulous idea at the height of the pandemic. But now consumers want to go out. They want to see who is making my food. They want to meet with friends. They certainly don't want nonsense delivered to their house or pick up from a door that's barely marked as a restaurant. They have no interest. There are no drivers. So that's why ghost kitchens are going south. And that's why ghost kitchens are dying because there's no consumer driver for it. It satisfies nothing. It doesn't save them money. It doesn't let them, um, you know, meet with friends and family. I can't see who's cooking it. So it's a mystery. And now they're coming under fire for food safety issues on top of it. So that's why they're like, great, restaurants are open, back to restaurants. They don't want delivery. Delivery numbers are going down. So there's, a again, 50 reasons why ghost kitchens were great for COVID. And then you better get out of it because there's no drivers. So you have to look at, if you're thinking of opening a new concept, you have to look at what are the drivers, not what consumers say, but what is behind them pushing them. That's what you have to know to predict where they're going next. And ghost kitchens have no drivers for that's not healthier. It's a, there's nothing, there's no pull at all, which is why their numbers are going south. Ah, that that is very interesting. And that totally makes sense about ghost kitchens. And it, and what you're saying too, that restaurants, you know, really being a psychological escape for people. I'm definitely one of those people, you know, being uh stuck at home for a year, year and a half, and just being in the food service industry as well, I think uh, compounded on top of that, where I, when I finally was able to go sit outside at a restaurant or, or when I could finally get back to inside at the bar at a restaurant, yes. I was like, I, it, I can't exactly, stop. Exactly, right? It's, it's very healthy. It's a very healthy behavior, which is why we're not yet in a recession because all the consumer patterns, they're not behaving like they're in a recession. I mean, they're being cautious, but they are not pulling back and being typical recessionary pattern. Like I'll give you a fun example. Normally going into recession, we all start drinking alcohol more. Yes. Absolutely. 100%. 2008, 2000, like every recession, that's what it, we all drink alcohol. We're not drinking alcohol. And what's interesting, so it's an upended trend. But again, it's because COVID was so damaging physically they're hanging on to health behaviors that normally they would abandon when there's financial hard times. They abandon health. They're not abandoning health, which means they're not going back to alcohol. That's why you keep reading and seeing so much about like non-alcohol and low alcohol, blah, blah. That's why psychologically it's because COVID is the parents physically damaged us. We're terrified to get sick again or so we're, we're hanging on to those health behaviors. Like that's, that's one of the patterns that's, but I will say this, when we are drinking, this is another pattern that's totally never been seen. We would normally go back to inexpensive wines from California. We would go to domestic beer. We're not. We're drinking premium, my friend. So we're not drinking as much, 
but we're drinking higher end spirits. And the other thing that would normally happen is cocktails would go to single cocktail, like single ingredient, like gin and tonic, right? Very simple. That's not happening. We're still drinking margaritas and Long Island iced teas and fabulous tiki things. Because again, mentally, it's an escape. I'm not drinking as much. So when I do have a cocktail, it's going to be on fire and fabulous. So that, so those patterns, but once you understand why it's occurring, it's very easy to read the pattern. It's very easy to predict what's going to happen next. Yes. Uh, but yeah, so that's like, that's one of the fun patterns that was, that's upended, but it's easily explained to a bar, let's say a bar for a restaurant, what to expect, what they're looking for, what they're certainly not looking for. You know, so keep your little Malbecs on the menu, for goodness sakes. Don't just have Chardonnay. Yeah. Or you do not mean like California cab is lovely, but that's not what they're going to want. They they want Argentinian, whatever, you know, something coming in from Italy. That's what they want. And that's when I tell the client why this is. And once you explain to the client why it's occurring, it's very easy for them to understand and put change the menu, do whatever they're going to do for the menu. Mm. I, I think you literally just described myself. Uh, since COVID, I, it, during COVID, I definitely, you know, in terms of eating and drinking, it was just a, a free game. I mean, I, I was on a seafood diet. I had seafood and I'd eat it. And at, at the end of that, I went to my doctor. I go to my doctor once a year on my birthday. It's my, it's my gift to myself. And my doctor goes, Hey, in the last year, since you're here last, just so you know, you've added 20 pounds and your blood pressure <laughs> has gone into prehypertension. And he, go, oh, no. he gives me this chart. He goes, I recommend eating these foods. And these are foods that are grown out of the ground. Um, I said, okay. Yeah. So I started getting on this health kick. I lost the 20 pounds. I am no longer pre-hypertension. And then just eight months ago, I just decided, I was like, you know what? I'm going to stop drinking alcohol. Every bar I go to has non-alcoholic beers, which 90% of them do. So I just stopped drinking alcohol. So it's, it's interesting. <laughs> I, I'm kind of following... Uh, I, I guess the trend. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and it's funny because normally in going into recession, normally QSR numbers go up, quick service restaurants go up. They're going down because now consumers are actually blaming QSR for their weight gain during the pandemic. Also <laughs> think about this during the pandemic and lockdown, who's the only one that had drive-throughs mm -hmm. QSR. So QSR numbers rocketed. Well, now we're kind of over that. We're like, uh, yeah, I think I want to sit down with my friends and family at a normal restaurant. And QSR is also, in my opinion, kind of made the mistake. We're going to have all these drive-thrus. I'm like, do you not get this is going to be over in a couple of years? Do you not get that people want to sit in the restaurants? You just got rid of your restaurant and put in a bunch of drive-thrus. That's not what consumers want. So they yeah. did not predict coming out of the pandemic how the behaviors are going to revert back. Now we're starved to go out to restaurants. So also with restaurants, what they're doing, what consumers behaviorally are doing, which is very predictable and very fascinating is they're, like I said, they, they're cautious with money, right? It's not like there has been inflation, they're, they're hurting, right? Mm -hmm. But they still want to go out to restaurants. So like I said, they're going to that kind of more fun, mid-range pub, grills, those types of restaurants, right? And the three things they'll abandon on the menu to save money, but be able to go out with the friends, the family, the three things they'll abandon is cocktail, like, or any beverage in general, they'll drink water, right? Mm -hmm. To save money. They'll abandon desserts and they'll abandon appetizers. Uh, Those are the top three things they'll walk away from. So they can, they can go out and save a little bit of money on the check. You know what I mean? That makes sense. The other thing is, um, 
and it's kind of a, a sad, heartbreaking trend that occurs, but we're already seeing it again, is snacks. Snacks are also being, snacking can go up, but it, it goes up for two reasons. One, it goes up because I'm stressed out, mm-hmm. so I'm snacking more. But there, but the other reason, unfortunately, it goes up right now, especially, is because I can't afford a meal. So I'm going to have a snack because I can't afford a meal. And that's where the appetizers have a way to win again. Because the appetizer could be positioned as a mini meal. And now I feel like I'm having a mini meal. And so now I can go to the restaurant, right? Genius. I, I, genius. <laughs> I, I, so- you're, the way your mind works, I'm like, uh, that is, <laughs> it, it, on one hand, it's, it's very much could be in trouble with a recession. But on the other hand, here's this great opportunity for appetizers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you psychologically, if you know what the behaviors are doing and why they're doing it, then you can predict what consumers are doing before they do it. Interesting. Interesting. So that's why the cocktails have gone, the the alcohol has gone down, but the cocktails themselves are fabulous and complex because it's an escape. And I'm only going to have one, not three. Right. That's why they're not going to gin and tonics in California Chardonnay. Right. Because I'm going to make it special. And also millennials are the first generation to actually want to take their kids to a restaurant. Gen X and above was like, oh, babysitter, please. Thank you. Right. Date night for millennials. And now the top of Gen Z is like kids are involved. So that's a radically different type of restaurant, which, again, is not suited for a steakhouse, a quiet steakhouse, because those two younger generations, that's not where they go. They bring the kids with. So it has to be somewhere where the kids kids could be accepted. Right. And so also like kids menus, don't get me started. Those generations also like they don't want even Xers. They don't want. I'll put it this way. What they do want is they want a micro version of the regular menu on the kids menu. They don't want to talk to, like macaroni and hot dogs on the kids and chicken fingers on the kids menu. They want if they're an Italian restaurant, they want a miniature Italian menu for the children. They want a miniature Southern Thing for the ch- they don't want their kids on macaroni and cheese and, and nonsense that because then the kids are just going to want that at home you know what I mean mm-hmm. it's like don't patronize the six year old like freaking give the six year old fettuccine alfredo if that's what's on your menu in a mini version so the the kids menus are wildly different and that draws the parents to pick that restaurant because the child's menu is is it's not disrespectful it's respectful. It gives that child an adult palate in a mature version. You might not make it spicy like on the adult, you know, there's tweaks you can do, but that then draws in the parents. So now you've captured the millennial and top of X or Gen Z, I'm sorry, generations who have small kids. Mm-hmm. They're judging your restaurant if they have kids and they're bringing their kids. Does that make sense? It, it totally makes sense. I remember when I was going out with my parents as a kid, the menu was so, the kids menu was so, Limiting it was chicken fingers and pizza. That was exactly exactly. And the younger parent, I mean, even Gen X did not want that. And that Gen X was the first generation who wanted adultized menus for kids. So then millennials and and Gen Z have the same pattern. They don't want hot dogs and macaroni and cheese for their kids. They want the adult version smaller, and maybe less spicy or you know simpler prepared, but that's what they want. So they will, the adults, if they're taking their children, a lot of times they're not taking them to a restaurant because the adults want to go there. They're trying to figure out, okay, where, where will my kids eat? 
<laughs> Where can I get them to eat the food? Great. That's the restaurant we're going to. You give us, you know, something super silly like crayons and coloring. Sold. 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 I'm going to that restaurant all day long with my small children. Oh, my God. You know what I mean? So there's like, you have to know the behavior and the psychology of them, not just what's the flavor trend. That's not going to help you. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Um, I I have a, a sidebar question that just popped in my head. I'm just, uh, I, I'm very curious to get your take on this. I don't know how much you've studied uh, like history, but a mm-hmm. hundred years ago we had a pandemic and it was the Spanish flu. And from oh, yeah. my understanding, the Spanish flu was there in the late 1910s. And once it started to yeah. slow down, you know, there was this pent up demand, but then the U.S. quickly jumped into a, a, a short lived recession followed by, you know, the roaring 20s. Um, yes. Could that be something that we're seeing now? You know, we've had a pandemic, pent up demand was definitely real the last couple of years. And now there's talks of recession. Could that happen again? Yeah, it's interesting. Patterns definitely repeat. Yeah. The, the, the difference between now and that pandemic like the 1916, 17. Mm-hmm. And what's funny is you put trivia, you probably know this, but do you, you know, it's, it was called the Spanish flu. Yes. But do you know where it actually started? No, I don't. It started in an American boot camp. I think it was Texas. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. So it started, the reason it's called the Spanish flu is because um, Spain, because we were in World War One. That's right. Right. That's how it became a pandemic because then the soldiers went over and it just spread everywhere. Mm-hmm. Spain was the first country to say it out loud. Spain was the first, like, I think we have a problem, <laughs> but it actually started in America. But Spain was the only country that said, uh, dude, I think everybody in the world is sick. Maybe we should like take a beat right. here. Um, that's why it's called the Spanish flu, but it actually started in America in, in our, our barracks. And then we spread it all over the world <laughs> because we wouldn't say anything about, which is, I find very entertaining. But anyways, the difference is though, is we were in a war and the war helped pull us out of the recession because we, you know, women went to work for the war effort. Men went to work for the war effort. The war that's occurring now, we are far more distanced from with the Russia Ukraine situation. So we don't have this economic stimulus fortunately of a war to like pull us out of the recession. The the reason we're not in a recession yet, like it was supposed to be like last summer, then well, maybe in the fall. Now it's like the spring. Okay, spring's past. Well, maybe in the summer we'll be in a recession. Two things you need for the recession, among other things, but you need the economy to stop. And that's not stop. Consumers are still spending. They're still going out. And again, it's psychologically, it's the damage that COVID called caused us being locked down. We're now it's COVID caused us to adjust to a whole new higher set point of fear in our lives. So now we came out of pandemic, people died, hundreds of thousands of people died, right? And now we're like inflation and we're like, man, ah, we got this. It'll be fine. Look, before inflation would be like, oh my gosh, doom and gloom, we're going into a thing. <laughs> we would go into a But psychologically, they're averse now. They're like, yeah, no, it'll be fine. We got this. We're little bit we might not drink as much we're not going to go out three days a week we're going to go out one day a week to restaurant but they're not stopping the spending and that's why we're in a stall for so many months because even though financially we're in hard times we're unwilling to mentally go back into a recession that's why we're not in a recession so because uh, you know it's it's a very old-fashioned term but it's gumption like it's like nope we got this 
we've been through a pandemic. We got this. We're still going out to eat. We're still going to buy some clothes. We're going to be cautious, but we're, we're still going to travel, but we're not going to panic. Here's another fabulous, awful statistic for you right now, <laughs> because it, it, this is a statistic that repeated in two, it occurred in 2008. And now it's occurring again, almost the exact same number. The 2008 recession, about 50% of millennials moved back home with mom and dad. And it was because of their age. They were kind of out of college, you know, but they were, we were in a recession. So they all, they all moved back home. So millennials have the most nicknames out of any generation. They're Gen Y, they're millennial. So in 2008, I don't know if you knew this, but do you know what their newest nickname became during the 2008 to 12 recession? Because they moved back home. Uh, I, they were called the boomer. They were, and by the way, millennials are the babies of boomers, right? right? So boomers, babies are millennials. Gen X, our babies are Gen Z. So Xers, babies are Gen Z. The personalities are similar. So millennials moved back home. So they became known as the boomerangers. I like that. Because <laughs> they all moved back home. I love that. So right now, there's a brand new study by four researchers who combined their efforts and now 48% of the top of Gen Z and the bottom of Gen Y move back home. So we've got the exact same situation, but it's a sandwich of part of Gen Z and part of millennials now move back home because we've been in inflation for so long. So I'll give you, you asked a while ago about food prediction. I'll give you a couple because of this phenomenon. I love it. Let's hear it. Because of this phenomenon, First thing that is you're going to start seeing more of is what we call generational recipes. So this is not comfort food. It's it's tied to this. It's a form of nostalgia. It is what did my grandmother from Russia used to cook? What did my grandmother from Germany used to cook? Because you've now got this generational mix in homes where you've got Papa Gen Z with mom, dad, and possibly grandmother in the house or granddad in the house. So you end up with generational recipes um, and nostalgia has definitely crept back in. So the reason nostalgia, it's not comfort food. I'll tell you one thing that's not going to happen is comfort food, which normally would happen by the way, but we t- we want to experiment too much because again, psychologically it's healthy and, and healing and lets us escape. So we want global foods. We want to try new things. So we're not in comfort food. We're not going to be in comfort food, but nostalgia is different. Nostalgic food is different. Because nostalgic food is food that is tied to a time or place in history. Mm. That's why whoopie pies come back. That's why some of these. So they're not comfort food, but they're grounding emotionally. Because this is a fabulous cocktail from the 1960s. Or this is a dessert that had its heyday in the 70s, which is showing up. You know, but they're fun flirty cakes from the 70s. They're not comfort food. So nostalgia is creeping back in because it's calming, it's grounding, but I still get to learn something new and try something new because it could be nostalgia from a different country, right? It could be from something that from Italy. It could be, you know what I mean? So I would also be watching Hollywood right now and what movies are coming out because movies can also be a parent. It's usually a very short term parent. It's a week, we call it a week period, but Hollywood can actually, movies coming out or a television show, you know, coming out could kind of boost a certain cuisine or a flavor trend or whatever. So the other thing showing up that's a good example is um, kind of not complex French cooking, but kind of everyday peasant 
Mm. So cassoulets and very peasant type food coming out of France, which is historical. You can be looking at Julia Childs and, you know, those type of authors from the 50s, 60s, 70s. Those type of foods have a very good shot at coming back in and already showing up in, in magazines, et cetera. But that's why it's global. It's a little bit complex. It's tied to a time and space in the world or time in history. And and I might not be able to make croissants at home, but I certainly know a restaurant I could go to to get them or a bakery to get them. You know what I mean? So it's not simple, simple com- comfort food, but that you build a picture like that to to explain why something's coming forward. But that's a couple little items that are, that are definitely coming forward. Susie, I I have learned so much today. I mean, I I, 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 I didn't know what to expect. And I, I have just been blown away. I, I have really enjoyed our conversation. Um, oh, yay. How fabulous. I have pages of notes here. And a lot of it's applicable to my business. So I'm excited to get back and be like, just start talking to people and go, look what I, I, I have all this information, all this knowledge now. And uh, here it is. It, it is the way you think is, I, I, I just don't. Candidly, I don't think like this, and I've never thought of things like it in this way. And so I just, this has been really great. So I, I just have to say thank you. Oh my gosh. Well, good. And we'll also look for, just if you're looking at desserts, look for regional, regional comfort. So like tie the dessert to a, to a country or a region in the U.S. So that's why you're going to be seeing like Boston cream pie. You're going to be seeing key lime pies, Southern stacked pies, um, but also ones, you know, internationally coming in from different parts of Europe. But again, look at the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. What desserts are coming from the Ukraine? Look at North Africa. So that's how you start, but you tie it to a region. So if you're going global, what we say is, do global comfort, no matter whether it's a drink, a dessert, a main dish, a, whatever it is, because it's still sexy enough for us. It's like, oh, that's Moroccan, whatever. But in Morocco, they're like, are you kidding me? We eat this like every day. It's boring. <laughs> but to America, we're like, oh, what's that? That's interesting. You know what I mean? So kind of look for what are the national dishes of different countries. That's that's what would resonate right now with consumers. It's calming. It's grounding. I know where this thing is from, but it's, it's, it's global. It's new. It's like, I've not had that. But it usually also doesn't contain ingredients that are crazy. That's why it's also very approachable. That makes sense. So we kind of think in patterns instead of specific foods. Once you know the pattern, you can back into the specific food, beverage, dessert, whatever it is you're wanting. But that's how we can easily adapt to different clients' corporate personalities, because some are insane. Some are very conservative, you know, so we can easily adapt. We just have to know who their personality is. And then we back into it with what the patterns are showing up as. Yep. That makes sense. Susie, again, I, I, one, I have to just say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and, and tell your story. And, and I, it's not just me that anybody who listens to this is going to take away so many great nuggets and very applicable. So just thank you for taking time to do this. I just, I am so appreciative. Oh, absolutely. This was fun. Good. And we'll have to, we'll have to do it again. I think there's so many other topics that we could dive deep into and uh, have future discussions around as well. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. And thank you so much for uh, joining me here on the Titans of Food Service podcast. Yes. Thank you for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. Oh, 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 oh,